0: Welcome to the Boomer the Babe Show, your headquarters for interesting and stimulating conversation with people who have been there, done that, and bought the T shirt. And indeed welcome. This is Pete Peters. And I'm Deborah Brown. And we are the Boomer and the Babe and we are back. <laughs> uh we've been gone for a, a few months. He I've young. been doing several been shows on young. my own and yeah. uh and now we're back again, doing shows. We're going to be doing shows twice a week on Tuesday and Friday and Friday mornings. And uh, 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 welcome, Deborah. I'm glad I'm glad Thank we're you. back together again.
1: Thank you. Well, we're rebuilding our empire. That's we're what I like
0: to say. Rebuilding, yeah, <laughs> shoring shoring it up.
1: Yeah, shoring up the uh, the, the wares and everything. Yeah,
0: a lot of things have changed since we've been on the air last. So we've uh we've purchased a new home and moved in uh an older home and moved in and we're working on that and and we've got a lot of a lot of lifestyle changes uh uh with the passing of parents and so on and so forth but uh we're we're putting things back together and uh having a good time doing it so uh,
1: should we tell the big one? What's that? We've been together 26 years and we got we got married finally.
0: Oh, I know, yeah, wasn't that something? <laughs> Unbelievable! I that's, know. A, that's a story in itself. I we don't know. have enough time to tell that story. Well,
1: we can tell our guest that story. Well, yeah, we. No can. way! He's got other stories he'll tell us. <laughs> yeah. We don't care about that. No.
0: So anyhow, yeah, our guest today is uh, Mr. Joe Winky. He's a he's an author, uh, a bit of, probably a bit of a rack on tour and a man about town. Uh, uh, all kinds of history as far as writing poems and novels and the like. And Joe's been with us before and uh that was when we had him on and we were discussing his book You've got to be kidding. And uh we're looking forward to talking about his new book right now, uh, which is is coming up, uh the talk show. And it's actually out, but we're gonna be talking about it and talking about it on the talk show. So Joe, welcome welcome back to the Boomer the Babe Show.
2: Hey, it's great to be
1: here, Pete and Deborah.
0: And I'm
2: meeting Deborah well, for the first time. Yeah. Yes, yes you are, yes you are.
1: Well, like I say, I was building the empire, so. <laughs> That's important to
2: do, yes.
1: Well, you know, we're going to talk about that, building the empire. I'm I'm kidding, but building a platform is very important for anybody in business, and particularly an author, and I know you've been working on building platforms, so you'll understand what I'm talking about, when you kind of have to regroup and uh, and figure out how you're going to get all your ducks in a row, so. Uh, First thing we want to do, and I think you've done this before, is is by way of telling who you are, we like to ask for your two-minute movie, and that is your life, as far back as you'd like to go, telling as much as you'd like to tell in a grand total of two minutes. So, please, your two-minute movie.
2: Okay. Well, I think I told some of this before because I was on talking about You Gotta Be Kidding, which is my satire of the Bible, and I followed that up with Papal bull. Which is kind of a satirical memoir of growing up in the Catholic Church, so I did indeed grow up Catholic large family, I'm the oldest of eleven children, grew up in Philadelphia, and uh you know sort of developed my own way of thinking and my own way of doing things, and it all sort of came together for me in terms of writing with those two books. I woke up one morning, never having had the thought before. And the first thing that I thought of that morning was I'm going to read the Bible. And when I find something funny, I'm going to write about it. So I just sort of walked over to my kitchen table where my laptop was, downloaded an electronic version of the Bible, read it up to the Adam and Eve story, and that's when I wrote the first sketch. And you got to be kidding! And I wrote like more than 70 sketches in the next few weeks, just like I was writing emails. And that led right into the memoir as satire, *Papal Bull*. So I sort of feel like, I think a lot of writers feel this way, that at a certain point, all of your experiences in life just sort of coalesce and clarify, and you're able to distill them uh, into a book. And for me, it was satire, but I like to do lots of different things. I had written a book on Norman Mailer that was actually originally my Ph.D. dissertation. That's another thing about me. I went to Notre Dame for my bachelor's, Penn State for my master's, and UConn (coughs) for my Ph.D., and now I'm I'm just about writing lots of different things like the talk show is a novel, you mentioned I've been writing a lot of poetry. I've come out with two books of poetry in the last uh, few months, Free Air and Looking for Potholes, and uh, that's really what I'm about right now. It's building that uh, that author's platform and getting people to know my writing. So that's kind of well.
1: It. It's it's very interesting to. Uh, refer to what you were writing as sketches. And I'm very intrigued by that because a lot of times uh, people will be writing small pieces of something, you know, and they might call it chapters, they might call it blog posts. Um, But I like that you called this sketches because that sounds like something I would like to do myself to get started on something. So how did that happen?
2: Yeah, that's just the way it came out. Uh, Deborah, it was really I would read a story in the Bible and I would retell it. And the idea was, if you're educated, intelligent, have a sense of humor, and you read the Bible literally, maybe you get satire, not fundamentalism. And they all came out as like little stories or sketches of the Bible, but retold from a, a satirical point of view. And I really wrote them without almost without revising a single word. It was sort of like doing beat poetry, and that's why the book came so fast. I. I Reread read the Bible, and wrote the book in, I think it was seven weeks. Oh, and then Papal Bull was sort of the same, but I had to go over 2,000 years of Catholic Church history and the beliefs and practices, etc. That was like a little over four months, and that's when I had this feeling, it looks like at least for now I'm going to be writing a lot. And, you know, you, you tread carefully around that statement, because I mentioned Mailer, he called writing the spooky art, and you just never know when it's going to stop. But I just sort of felt like, oh, I'm going to be writing a lot of stuff, let me build my own platform, and let me approach this like a small business and invest in it, and you know, just really pour myself into it, have some confidence in myself, believe in myself, and see where it leads. And where it's led is talking to both of you today.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, uh, I, I find it interesting what you
0: said you', the, you never know when it's going to stop. As as far as your writing process is concerned, do you know when it's going to start? Uh, I know I know when Deborah is writing or she's doing some projects like that. She says I can't get, I'm not in it yet, I'm not there yet, and all of a sudden the the, something snaps, the light goes on, and off she goes. And I'm wondering if that's similar to anything that you uh, that you face.
2: That's what I've been experiencing for the last couple of years almost every day. That's what's really weird. Uh, I think I mentioned to you before we got in the air, like, since July I've written uh, 180-something poems. And they just keep coming out, you know. And and, um, so it's hard to say when that is going to stop because it could stop at any time. Then there uh, there are other things like projects or things that take a long time. For example... I had the idea for the talk show a million years ago when I was a student at Notre Dame, and then it was just, I'd love to write a book called The Talk Show, and what would it be about? Well, maybe talk show hosts are frustrated. They seem to be powerful. You know, this is way back in the days of you know Johnny Carson, Dick Cavett. It seems like a great life, but maybe they feel they're not really communicating. And that was just the idea then, and it really developed over many, many years. And I wrote the first draft of, of that novel 20 years ago and I rewrote it over and over again and then I felt felt that I was finally ready to come up with the ultimate version after I'd published those those other books I was just talking about and so I just brought it out uh, two months ago Uh,
0: you say you you rewrote it several times Uh, at, at what point do you give your your manuscript to an editor and then once the editor has it and they make whatever changes or edits uh, or adjustments to the manuscript and you read it again uh... how frequently do you say boy that guy really or that woman really botched this thing up and it really what she did stinks yeah. and, and and lost lost all of the direction that i was looking for does that happen
2: it doesn't really happen and i know everybody's going to condemn me for this but i don't use an editor i use a copy oh, editor okay. and okay. i use a proof- proofreader and so I do get feedback and suggestions. But uh, the other odd thing is that most of the stuff I've been writing has hardly changed from uh, the first draft. Um, the other book that just came out last week, Human Agenda, is Interviews or Conversations. That's a whole different process because I would talk to somebody anywhere from 20-something minutes to an hour and a half, and you get an hour and a half, you get 85 pages of transcript. So it's it's kind of a laborious process to get to... The, the true distillation of what that conversation was. But even there too, I did it mostly myself and I had um one person do the copy editing and proofreading and another person who's primarily proofreader. But uh, the, these are, you know, basically things that I wrote myself without going through that traditional editorial process, for better or worse.
1: If you're a good writer, I know I'm going to I'm going to get in trouble too, but uh yeah, if you're a good writer, I think you can do that. And the reason I say that is because you you do keep your voice that way, and um, as long as somebody else has looked at it for the glaring, "Oh my God, you know I can't, I can't believe you kept putting you know the comma outside the quotation marks kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when they fix that kind of glaring things, that's really um, fine for some people. For other people, it's the kiss of death.
2: It is, and it's especially annoying. I don't use this person anymore, but I had a proofreader who would put mistakes into the manuscript. I didn't really appreciate that, you know, change something from what was right to what was wrong. And I did it in English, and when I was getting it, the reason I went to UConn and Penn State was that they had things called teaching assistantships, which the Ivy League schools didn't have, which meant that you uh, got a full scholarship, but you were also paid to teach at the university. So I was 22. I was teaching at Penn State while getting my master's, and then right after that, uh, teaching at UConn. And so I've taught writing. Not that I don't make I make a million mistakes, but I'm just saying, you know, it's it's kind of a frustrating process sometimes I think as you're implying to go through the traditional editing route, although it, it can be revelatory and it can be great, it depends on, on who you're working with. I think it it's kind of hard to edit certain types of writing, like satirical writing. Um, you really would have to live inside the point of view of the writer. And right. I'm a pretty- critical pretty radical writer and um like the talk show was a crazy novel and what was i rewriting i was mostly rewriting the opening which is totally obscene but very funny and humane and well i was I, just going to say it is it is
1: yeah it is obscene and if somebody i, I you know nice and, and i mean that in a nice way <laughs>
2: um
1: yes. but yeah so like if i didn't want you to say you know, the F word 17 times, because I have some kind of penchant for not having you do that, then we would have a problem going in, right? So you can't no, that's have that. Right.
2: Well, here's the, the interesting thing is that that language does not recur, for the most part, throughout the rest of the novel. There's one other little scene where it does. I don't want to give away too much of the story. But the reason I did it that way, and that maybe we could get into talking about the book, is that virtually all of the characters in this book have surface identities or social identities that people would maybe use to stereotype them, and then there's the real person uh, who gets revealed at odd times or in different ways. And uh, this this character, Abraham Lincoln Jones, the way that the book starts is about two main characters, Jack Winthrop, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist, and Abraham Lincoln Jones, who's America's most controversial TV talk show host. He's black, he's gay, he's the anti-Oprah in the sense that he is polarizing And he is radical, but he is simultaneously hated and loved by the very same people. They love him for his larger-than-life personality, his flamboyance. He sort of has a kind of James Brown stage presence. But he's very frustrated with his role as a TV talk show host on TV. And the way the novel starts is that late one night, after having more than a few Johnny Walker blues, he calls up Jack Winthrop. Two of them have never spoken before they don't know each other, but he just senses through Winthrop's work that he is a kindred spirit, and he sort of unburdens himself to Winthrop, telling him that he's frustrated and that what he wants to do now is to travel across the country in what he calls a national emancipation tour. He wants to perform before huge crowds, creating what he thinks would be the ultimate talk show. And Winthrop is very skeptical, but he senses that this is a moment of change for both men. And if he does this, and he's going to be criticized because he's a serious journalist and columnist, he's going to be looked at as Jones's flack. Uh, If he becomes his communications guru, he'll be criticized, but he needs to do this. And there's one passage where they imagine that they're like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, jumping off that cliff with the army uh, chasing them down. And it does turn out to be a fateful decision because it puts both of them in the crosshairs of a racist, psychopathic killer, and that kicks off the action. So I wanted to start the novel with this kind of big bang with lots of outlandish language that's very funny and humane just to get it started. And then linguistically, the novel takes a different turn.
1: Right, right. No, it's very. It's a very easy... Um uh it's very easy to get into I mean people will like, will enjoy it just it's very um and it's got a nice heft to it it's uh it's a lot of um uh what's the word? three hundred and nineteen pages plus no nope, actually more than yes. that so yes. yeah I, I like it and um and I think people will enjoy it so well it's a thriller and it's a very
2: fast read because I'm aware that people you know are on Twitter these days and Facebook and we communicate. Uh, you know, in just a few words, and uh, everybody's into mobile media, et cetera. But it's it's also, and I think the writers in your audience will understand this, the, the organizational unit is really the single sentence, and every sentence is attempting to be a kind of little explosion on your brain and to be very funny but to make you want to keep reading. And so I would also say if you like the dialogue in Quentin Tarantino movies, then you'll like the talk show.
1: Good point. Good point. Now, you mentioned um, in something that I've seen that you had a sense that the novel has been in decline for decades in terms of its cultural importance, and I think you relate that to, what, television and the 24-hour news cycle?
2: Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back to film. Like, what is the primary artistic communications medium? I think it's the novel, back in the days when, you know, even before Mailer, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, when people thought about the great American novel... Uh, it had a centrality. Maybe it was propagated, you know, by the, uh, you know, literary people in universities, but there was this idea that the novel was central, and I do think it's been displaced by film, then TV, the 24-hour news cycle, uh, by social media, by the Internet, uh, by the fact that people can instantly get information just about anywhere, and yet it's still this really powerful medium, and so I actually wrote it for the same reason that people used to write back in the day. I was trying to sum up what it's like to be alive like we all are right now at this time and place you know, in America.
1: Well, don't you find it interesting that some people get their, their news and maybe even their sense of the culture from people like Jon Stewart for yes. The Daily Show and Bill Maher and even Saturday Night Live? will give you a better glimpse sometimes of what's going on in America than uh, other mainstream ways of getting information. I, I just have a sense that it's a very weird time in our history. Uh,
2: it is very weird, and you know the other thing that's happening, I've talked to various artists about this, is that everything you do is viewed as content, and people think content should be free, and it's free on the Internet. So it's hard to sell books for that reason. People don't think that they should pay or anything, but you're right, we're getting our news, and I put that word in quotes, from a lot of different sources, and a lot of times what we're getting are our opinions. And, you know, you, you look at the Internet, for example, and it's it's an um, unbelievable tool. I mean, you can get just about any piece of information, if you're good at searching, in 10 seconds. Uh, and it's like the entire l- library of the world is at, at your fingertips up on the Internet. But the Internet's also a kind of garbage dump, of hate of uh, rumor i mean you go and you it's amazing to me how racist a lot of the comments are on youtube and you know i tweet a lot and if i ever tweet about guns for example i've ruined my evening because all of the people who are pro-gun come out and attack me and i feel like i have to respond to them so i i only do that when i have absolutely nothing to do all night And. So you're right so what is what is the news? What is a fact? what's an opinion? what's a real report? Uh, you know, there's the whole Brian Williams thing going on now. who do we trust and so again again, I think in that kind of a context, it's interesting to attempt to communicate through the novel because basically it's storytelling, you know, and I think that that's the fundamental way that we we humans actually communicate. And that's also why I wanted to do the, the other book, The Human Agenda, which is conversations about people, people telling stories about themselves. And it's a way of finding common ground. And that's really, in the talk show, Jones's radical message is not radical at all. It's unity through diversity. It's let's see where we can come together, even though we appear to be different. And I think when we tell stories about ourselves, there's that opportunity opens up for understanding and empathy, where a lot of times, you know, it can be polarizing just to have different opinions. So that's why I think it's cool to do a lot of different things. If you read, you got to be kidding. It's extremely radical. It could get a lot of people angry, but it's funny. And, you know, humor is anarchic. Uh, th- this is kind of a wild book, but it's storytelling. Um, Winthrop likes to hang out at a strip club all the time called the Tit for Tat, and all of the characters who are there could be viewed as, you know, could be condemned or written off or marginalized. Uh, but when you get to meet them, you say, "Wow, these are not people are not so different from me. They're funny, they're humane, they're warm, they're generous." So that's sort of one of my main messages, anyway.
0: How to get back to what you were saying a minute ago, uh, with regard to the the garbage dump that is the internet, and uh, uh, it's the garbage dump that that is politics right. today. It's I mean, everywhere you turn, there's uh, there's some kind of a situation where people are just spewing, uh, and you know what they, uh, you know, that old adage about uh, that's uh, people opinions are like uh, the backside. Everybody has one type of a situation, you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and uh, it's 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 just maddening. I remember one time, and it was a while back because I've I've sworn off doing this now. Because I got I got into a tussle on uh, on Facebook with somebody, uh, I, I I think it was uh, a political situation if I remember correctly about liberalism versus conservatism and who should you know running for president and so on and so forth. I mean, and these people were just vitriolic. I mean, the no. the venom just just. Ooze out of every word that they said, and these were some people actually that I that I knew, uh, that that were supposed friends of mine, and uh, yeah. certainly not great acquaintances, but certainly people the, that I had knowledge of and had knowledge of me. And even to this day, I I get emails from some friends around the country, and and they sending me all this stuff, and i just going, my God, how can you believe this? How can you, I mean, your, their parents would be rolling over in their grave. We're all the same age, and I and I just say to myself, boy, your parents would be rolling over in the grave if they, if they knew uh, that you were putting this kind of stuff out and, and passing this kind of information along. And I don't, I think that's just bound to continue, and it's going to get worse. What do you think? you think there's a place and point where it'll stop?
2: No, I think everything just gets worse all the time. In fact, one of my mottos in life is things are much worse than we can possibly imagine, which suggests the terribleness of existence and the paucity of the human imagination. Uh, It's kind of a pessimistic view, but, I mean, I think a lot of people feel like that these days, and that's the irony of having access to all kinds of information, but what's real, what's true? And it's interesting that you're pointing out that these are people you know. That's one of the issues or problems, and I think... You know, increasingly, people have problems in their families and with friends over divisions, not just of opinion, but, you know, of identity. And, and this is one of the things I get into deeply in the human agenda. <clears throat> you know, if you are identify as gay or transgender, uh, are you rejected by your family? Uh, what do they think of you? Are you rejected by your friends? And where do you find that common ground? On the other hand, <clears throat> I think that what provokes a lot of the hate on the Internet is anonymity. And it's a place where cowards go to vent uh, because you don't know who they are. And I think all of this has created – this is another thing that the talk show is about. Uh, I mean, the Internet is used by terrorists. We know that, the whole ISIS thing. And I think we're inundated not only with a lot of hate and a lot of negativity, but a sense, really – and I think this is a new sense that a lot of people – I have it, and you may too – that something bad could happen anywhere at any time. And this sense, to me, gets validated all the time in the news. And it's sort of born of terrorism and school shootings. And I've said this quite a few times, you know, in different interviews. And what just struck me the other day is every time I say it, there's been something else horrible that's happened in just the last uh, couple of days, right? You know, the Jordanian pilot being set on fire. Uh, And there's just this sense, I think, that a lot of people have that, you could be in the most mundane situation right now seemingly safe and something terrible could happen and that's really one of the things that the talk show deals with uh, going back to winthrop and jones these are guys who are very controversial so they get their share of hate mail but once somebody is personally stalking them it changes everything and in this case all of their friends are being stalked as well and endangered as well so with that was that theme i was trying to capture the sense I'm describing of describing a fear and a paranoia, but it's real, because we're I think because of the internet too and the 24-hour news cycle, we're tapped in to all of the terrible things that happen across the world in a way that wasn't possible a few decades ago, before the internet.
0: Well, I think also that there's a, such a proliferation of of cable news and everything else. Anything you turn on, has got negativity. Anything yeah. you turn on is gotten. i mean because I know when we when Deborah and I are sitting here in the office and we're working we, chances are we have some cable news show on news station on on t v volume down. But still it's, it's still penetrating you know what i'm saying and i and i finally will turn to her and say turn that damn thing off already this is just enough is enough you know and uh you, you gotta go find you gotta go find a good tune or some kind of a comic bit with uh <laughs> with carol burnett or something like that on youtube just to get your just to shake it off just to get that crap off of you because it sticks to you and before you know it you're you're of a mindset that's just walking around blob of negativity and i and it just drives me nuts
2: yeah i agree i think we're all swimming in this sense of negativity and the question how do we get beyond it and uh again i think maybe some old school stuff you know watching carol burnett or johnny carson on youtube or reading novels or reading poetry or going to a concert uh, but you're right, I think we're all looking for refuge from this constant drumbeat, this sort of echo chamber of hate and negativity that seems to go on relentlessly 24 hours a day.
1: I think also finding a way to be human with each other, not through texting and other means like that, where you don't have your face in front of somebody else, you know, or your voice, actually, exactly. like we are right now. And being able to um, cheerlead for someone, like I, I would like to cheerlead for you, that the fact that you've written seven books in two years, the <laughs> fact that you're working on your portfolio, the fact that you have an understanding of how this works and that you've, you've not gone the traditional publishing route, but that you've got that open to you probably coming forward you know, because right. of how you've done it now. I'd like to cheerlead for you for that you know, because I, I get how hard that is and how exciting that is. And isn't that a much better place to be than maybe, uh, you know, getting on a show with somebody that doesn't like your work? <laughs> you know, well, absolutely. You're, you're I think we,
2: you know, <laughs> we need to respect each other. We need to root for each other. Uh, the first poem in that book of poetry that just came out with called Looking for Potholes is called I Don't Have to Be Right. You know, wrong is fine with me. And I think if we have that attitude, we're not perfect. We can all learn something from each other. I think that's a lot healthier and more positive. And I also think it's a, it's a question of energy. I mean, you can sort of sense who's positive, just like the way people talk and the way they present themselves and the way they are in a room. And it's so uplifting to be around people with positive energy. And it's devastating, really, to, to be immersed in negativity all of the time. And I think that it, it undermines creativity. It's really you've got to get out of the way of all that stuff somehow.
1: Well, I'll tell you, the day that I kind of came back into my joy of being who I am is the day that I finally started saying out loud, I'm a proud Democrat. Because during the uh, beginning of the Bush presidency, um, I remember I was in a uh, beauty salon here in Sun City, Arizona, and I happened to mention that I listened to an AM radio station and I don't even know what made me say it because I'd been keeping it all on the down low, um, yeah. you know that I was listening to Air America, and mm-hmm. um, and my hairdresser was like, oh God, be quiet, you know all these people around here are, you know, oh I don't want anybody to know, but I listen to that too. And I thought, we have gone insane, we have gone completely insane. So I kept it all quiet, you know, and I just didn't say anything to anybody, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And really, like Pete was saying. People are crazy, the stuff that they send, and they don't know what our particular bias might be and, or not. And, and you know what? My bias is let's be human. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I just want you to be a nicer person and let me have my opinion, and you go do your thing and I'll do mine. That's really all I want.
0: And, and there's, let me let me uh, piggyback on that too, uh, Joe, and that, and that is uh, when, when... – when you get in, interested in people, or you get to hearing people saying, well, it's a right. I have a right to do that, whether it's gun control or you name it, I've got a right. Well, I, my question to them is when does your right trump my right? You know, I've got rights also in this country, and why is it that your rights are better than mine? Why do they supersede mine? Who are you to tell women what they can and can't do? Who are you to tell uh, uh, gays and lesbians that they can't get married and, and have their family their way? Who are you to, it's just because it's your idea, just because you read it somewhere? What is this? Come on, let people live and let live, you know? Not that whatever their lifestyle is, it isn't affecting me. And if they're happy, they're happy. And I just I just can't understand that these people cannot get it through their heads that everybody has rights and they don't have a corner on that market.
2: Right, and we all have a right to be respected. And I think uh, an important point, too, is that identity is self-validating. If you say who you are, people need to believe you. So if you say, I'm a Democrat, I'm a lesbian, I'm gay, I'm transgender, I'm a liberal – Uh, you you deserve respect for that, and nobody should question it or think that you're somehow less of a person. I don't notice that people who are negative are shy about stating their opinions or their right to their opinion. And I think that there's a lot of confusion about that. Yes, we all have a right to an opinion, but we don't have the right to be disrespectful of other people. And so I think that we we need to find that common ground where we can all come together and uh, celebrate our humanity. And uh, that's what I think... The arts are about, Uh writing, writing books included, and that's one I of uh, my main messages. And that's really what my interest is uh, in mm, trying I understand to create that, that common, common ground, even if sometimes you know I can offend people. Well, I get offended too, so
1: <laughs> we're even. <laughs> <laughs> but it's done well. Now, are the characters in the talk show based on people you know? Are they a composite of? you and a whole bunch of other people or tell us about that uh,
2: they're really not people I know except to say that Jack Winthrop is sort of my voice in the book and uh, most of what is in the book is entirely uh, fictional although I have to say the strip club scenes are very well researched I certainly know <laughs> about that world uh, but I was trying to create characters that I could relate to and I you know, I was realizing some odd connections uh, the main character who hangs out at The Tit for Tat Strip Club is Father Rita Harvey, who's a transgender Catholic priest. And I thought, you know, years after I started writing this book, I'm really writing here about, to some extent, about my mother. Because Rita Harvey is like the soul of innocence, and that's what my mother was. And one of the themes in the book is, you know, who survives and who doesn't survive. And you're always worried about people who are innocent and pure of heart. In fact, that's one thing that Winthrop doesn't understand. Uh, And Rita is excommunicated for becoming transgender. She leads an activist group of gay priests and nuns. They have a big demonstration at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. They get arrested. But she still loves the Catholic Church, and she loves the Catholic Church unconditionally. And no matter what happens to her, you can never change the fact that she is innocent, pure of heart. And I think that's fascinating. And so, you know, there are some characters in the book who seem very streetwise and tough, and there's this question, well, do they survive in this very dangerous world? Who survives and how do you survive? Some people actually survive best by being apparently the most vulnerable somehow, and that's something hard to understand. I don't understand it, but I just tried to portray that uh, in the book and through uh, Winthrop's point of view. Wow. Now,
0: before we got came on air, uh, you you mentioned that uh, there are, as you also indicated with your uh, your research in the in the strip clubs, uh, but there was one other incident uh, that was based on, uh, on on what happened to you as a, as a youngster
1: or a yeah. younger person,
0: uh, and that was with uh, Robert Kennedy.
2: Yeah, there's this one scene in the book, and when I say most of the book is fictional, you wouldn't think this one actually uh, happened to me, but it did. And years ago, it was back, way back in 1968, I was a kid, Robert Kennedy was running for president. He came through my suburban Philadelphia neighborhood, and those are very different days uh, where the security is not at all what it is now. And, of course, that was the year that both he and Martin Luther King, Jr. were assassinated. But at any rate, uh, he was simply riding on an open car. Uh, with secret servicemen perched on the car, and the crowd it was like you know it was like he was a member of the Beatles. He was mobbed by all of these people, and he was literally hanging upside down out of the moving car with the secret servicemen holding onto his legs and Winthrop recounts the scene as if it happened to him. It did happen to me. I was in the crowd, and I got buffeted up front right up against him and grabbed his hand, and then in a second, got sort of whirled out of the crowd. And I decided, uh, rather than trying to go back into the crowd to run ahead to where his, his car would end up, uh, and just observe him. And what was really striking to me and striking to Winthrop is that after all of this tumult and this crowd uh, noise and being you know, practically pulled out of the car, he put on an overcoat. It was a cold day, he sat down, and he was just staring straight ahead with this numb look on his face. And uh, it made me, in retrospect, and it makes Winthrop think of this Emily Dickinson poem, After Great Pain a Formal Feeling Comes. And there was just this look of numbness on his face staring straight ahead. And in fact, uh, just uh, two months later he was dead. So it's something uh, I obviously always remember.
0: Uh in your efforts uh, as you indicated that you have talked to many uh, interesting and, and wonderful people great people uh in your interviews uh, your your book with interviews is there anything outside of your uh outside of your literary work that has uh been a particular interest to you as far as the people that you've met along the way
2: Well, really, I I met a lot of great people back in my university days, quite frankly. Um, You know, teachers who I still think of. uh, Mickey Stern, who was a great uh, Melville scholar and Fitzgerald scholar. And, uh, you know, he was at the University of Connecticut, Jack Davis. And uh, people who made me really admire someone who dedicates themselves to intellectual inquiry. Those kinds of people are the ones that I admire. I'm not a university kind of a person, but they've uh taught me to, to think for myself, to think rigorously and to be imaginative. So uh that's also something that I carry through my life and I think uh, many people do as well. Um so and I you know I've gotten to know a few people uh pretty well in, in the LGBTQ community and through the uh the interviews that I have done, and um, you can read about many of them in the Human Agenda, which <laughs> just came out a couple of days ago.
1: I have a question about LGBTQ. Yeah. I noticed that in your materials, and I actually had to go to Google and figure out what the Q was for because I had never seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me what that is, and uh, if you don't mind.
2: Sure, uh, and yeah, the Q stands for queer, so it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and then there's an I, which stands for intersex. And so I use that acronym, actually, in the human agenda because uh, one of the people that I interview is an intersex activist, Hita Valoria. There's an interesting thing with the word queer, and I'm always very interested in, in how language evolves. And, of course, that was a form of hate speech, and it still is in many respects. But it's a word that the community is reinventing. And increasingly, I'm finding young people uh who are lesbian will identify as queer. For example, Kristen Russo is one of the people I interview and she sort of reinvented the advice column with an internet site uh called every Everybody is get excuse everyone is gay dot com. And she talks about how it just didn't feel right for her to call herself lesbian and she likes the word queer because that has other connotations as well. Uh like being different from the mainstream And she even used the word to describe a friend of hers who, believe it or not, has a hobby, rides boxcars around the country. And so it's sort of being subversive or living, as she said, outside the grid. And so I think it's a word that's beginning to be successfully reinvented, although it's a word that if you're sort of older in the community, uh, was certainly, as you were growing up, a very hurtful word. But that's what the Q stands for. Now, I'm not a big fan of the acronym (laughs) alphabet soup of the community, but nobody's come up with uh, just one word to describe you know all of the diversity within the, the community
0: well it does sound like the the, the use of the term queer then that is definitely changing from when i was uh... younger in school because that was that was definitely a yeah. a, a, a nasty thing to say to somebody he says you're a queer and uh... Yeah, that and that was not at all good in any sense of the word uh, it's just like using the N word and and yes. many others. Yeah. Uh,
1: Anytime you use the word U R A, U R A, and then whatever it is, exactly. it becomes an epithet. And there's no, there's no. That's just amazing. You know, it can just be a regular word. I also saw the word questioning. Um, yes. In my research, that that was what the cue was for because some people it, were yes. uncomfortable with the word queer. Well, it
2: stands for that too, and that's really people who are questioning their identity and on a journey. So, uh, there are multiple meanings. Uh, sometimes the letter A is at it, which for some people means asexual or it could mean ally. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's another issue with the use of, of the acronym that it has multiple meanings.
1: Mm-hmm. But uh,
2: it's, and some people from a gender standpoint define themselves as genderqueer, uh, meaning they're not part of the gender binary, they're gender fluid, and they're not necessarily transgender or cisgender, which is the word that's now been coined. To describe people who identify with their biological gender as opposed to i'm sorry uh, what
1: was that what was that one
2: cisgender is uh describing somebody who is aligned with and identifies with their uh biological gender that they were assigned at birth based on reproductive organs, chromosomes, hormones, neurology. Gender identity, which isn't very well understood, is really how we experience and communicate our gender. Uh, so most people are aligned with their biological gender. Some are not, and those people are transgender.
1: So, this is instead of saying normal and not normal. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, well, normal you know, words, is a very you know what uh, I'm saying judgmental term. Right? I know. Normal.
1: I know. Exactly. It's not normal
2: to be brilliant. It's not normal to be a genius. It's not normal to be a prodigy. Uh, those are not bad things. So, so mm-hmm. just saying normal as a judgment. Is actually, you right. know, you're not normal. That's another form of
1: hate speech. Exactly. Wow.
2: I, I think
0: a lot of cases, there's people are using words without a full meaning or understanding of the meaning of them and in, in, in the context they're using them. And, and I don't know if that's um, uh, something that you just have to, they have to be more wary of, we should all be more wary of, or if... Uh, or we should just walk through life oblivious i don't, I don't know yeah well, I don't think
2: that people are entirely sensitive to all the meanings of words. I mean, if you say somebody's not normal you 're saying you know there's something wrong with you, and what 's right. wrong a lot of times is just that that person's different and This is another concept that I really look at uh in the talk show with uh, all these disparate characters in the human agenda, and that is for some people, difference is amazing it's sort of what makes life worth living, why would you want everybody to be exactly like you? But difference can also be the foundation for bigotry. Uh, You define somebody who's different from you as the other, as threatening, and that there's something wrong with them because they're, quote, not normal, meaning they're not like you or how you define the norm, which is how everybody should be, Uh, rather than being an individual and not conforming just because lots of people are or act a certain way.
0: I'm kind of of the opinion, and I'm saying kind of of the opinion because I haven't developed the thought completely myself, and that is that a lot of the bigotry and the hatred is fear-based, and, and it basically maybe fear of the unknown, uh, and that's what causes a lot of the problems. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think when you don't know something or understand it, uh, there's a tendency to be fearful of it. And uh, I think that's why attitudes toward marriage equality are changing as more and more people come out more and pe- more people have family members sons daughters brothers sisters friends colleagues at work who are gay and i said wait a second i know that person they have a right to get married now that's a great thing so you you've established a personal connection it's really hard to judge people when you have that personal connection but when somebody's unfamiliar it can be threatening not a lot of people, no transgender people, they don't understand it, and as a result, I think that there's sometimes a negative reaction. So that's the whole thing about passing over to another person's point of view, finding common ground, you know, breaking down stereotypes and preconceptions, and giving people the, opportuni- the opportunity to be who they are and to celebrate that. So, and I think it's a journey. You know, you start with tolerance, then you move on to acceptance, and then finally, you know, in the spirit of Walt Whitman, you celebrate them and yourself.
0: I, I found I found myself being a sixty-seven-year—I think I'm sixty-seven still—sixty-seven-year-old white male, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, um, that through the course of my life, uh, and now I'm becoming certainly more aware of it than ever before. There are people that I meet along the way, and I find out that they are indeed gay, or they are indeed lesbian, or whatever the case transgender, whatever the case might be. And it's all of a sudden I come to the realization that, you know, they're just like me, <laughs> other, exactly. other than some of their other than some of their preferences, and and it's um it's enlightening and it's freeing. It frees you of worrying about it. It does because it doesn't matter one to another.
2: Yes, we're all human beings. In fact, that's why I came up with the title The Human Agenda. It's really an ironic commentary on, again, hate speech. The old hate speech phrase, the homosexual agenda, which is that gay people are somehow uh, conspiring to uh, influence kids to become gay and that they're doing something that's undermining the culture. And so I've tweeted any number of times, and it's the epigraph to the book, uh, the human, ag- uh, the, the homosexual agenda is the human agenda: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If there is any agenda, that's all it is. And the transgender agenda is the same. We all pretty much have the same goals as human beings, even though we approach them in different ways. And it's you know captured in those words: uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We just all want to be happy, and we want to find meaning in our lives. And I think again, <laughs> reminding ourselves of that. Uh, creates the possibility for finding commonality where previously it may seem that there's this gulf of difference uh, separating us from one another.
1: Well, I'd like to go back to the fact that you're building your platform yeah, because it is necessary for people who have something to say the way you do to do that because I just wrote down something that I don't think anybody else has, has said Um but I think it's true, and I'm going to say it, and then you can agree with me, I'm sure. But the more you read, the more you lead. In right. other words,
2: people, people have expand. got to be
1: reading these things.
2: Right. Yeah, it's all about entertaining other points of view. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you really what I think is a profound example. One of the people that I talk to in The Human Agenda is the author Andrew Solomon. Uh, he's the winner of the National Book Award, for a book he did on depression, I was talking to him about his most recent book, Far From the Tree. Far From the Tree looks at kids and families, uh, and the kids are, are, are stricken with what one would typically call a disability. They could have schizophrenia, or they could be on the autism spectrum, or they might be deaf, uh, or any number of things. Then in other instances, he's talking to families whose children uh... have committed horrible crimes he also talks to families of transgender uh... kids not a disability or a dysfunction but something that has been uh... identified as a you know a pathological condition and he says are all of these differences which are oftentimes looked at as disabilities really the basis for identity and he comes to the conclusion that really what makes us different is how we define ourselves and I think if we think about that, it doesn't have to be something dramatic, you know, like you're deaf. I mean, for example, the deaf community is against cochlear implants because they would view it as wiping out deaf people. Hida uh, Valoria I mentioned who's intersex, uh, and and I am really advocates against doctors performing operations on newborn babies because they think the baby is intersex, letting the child develop as, as the child will develop and then decide later on in life. And that is an identity. So, you know, this was really something new to me, too, thinking about characteristics that could be viewed as disorders or disabilities, uh, people who have intellectual disabilities, as the basis of their identity. And so that's really the richness of reading and the richness of of writing. So I agree with you.
1: Well, I think it's also the point of view, If 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 more of what I say has the word I, rather than you, when I'm talking about something that might be termed judgmental. In other words, let me judge myself, because I have all the information. I can't judge you, and I shouldn't be judging, shouldn't is another pejorative word, but you know, (coughs) it's just interesting how we can get ourselves in trouble by opening our mouths and using the word you too many times. You know, you are this, you are that, you did this, you did that. Well, how about what you did? I did. I I, I, I. Does that make sense?
2: Well, yes. I mean, finger-pointing, blame, judgments don't usually get you too far. And uh, that, that, again, is the point of really everything that I, I'm writing the talk show. When you get to know someone, you pass over to their point of view, you're going to have a different point of view about them. You're going to see the world through their eyes. And it's very difficult to judge once you get to that point of view. And, uh, you know, that that I mean that, from another point of view, that's why I write, too. I I write to entertain, but also to disturb, but in the sense of moving someone from one position to another position, uh, or to disrupt. And I think we all need to sort of be disrupted and move to other positions so that we can adopt new points of view and see the world differently.
1: You know, I just thought of something, Joe, and it's kind of um, odd, And, and that is that I don't think the people who are as judgmental as the ones that I think we're all talking about, kind of, you know, those people, um, I don't think that judgment happens um, when they see an accident on the side of the road and they realize that they can go help that person. They don't ask, are you transgender? You know, because I'm going to ready to help you now and I'm going to make sure that I'm not outside my comfort zone so much because you're different. You know, or people that run into a burning building to help the, the ones that are caught. Nobody stands there and says, I wonder how many Republicans or Democrats are in there, because I'm the other no. party. You know what I'm saying? So why is it that the humanity works in an emergency, but when you're sitting just in a normal state of affairs, you can't can't quite get there?
2: <laughs> well, I think we forget about ourselves in those situations of emergency. That's the disruptive event. But then you know, another one of my themes, change is really, really difficult. It's really hard to move out of positions that you've taken. Uh, we we want we all want to think, I guess, even though I you know wrote the poem saying wrong is fine with me. I guess we all sort of want to feel like we're right, and uh, it's difficult to get out of the whole wrong right thing. Not judge and accept people for who they are. And obviously, not accepting people who hurt other people in doing that, but getting out of judging others as human beings.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I I think that that is the healthiest way to to go about living one's life. And then it leads you open, I think, more open to discovering new things and new ideas. And so you're enriched by that openness uh, and by not judging.
1: Well, I think it's going to be a lot easier to read a book that gets me in that frame of mind than it is to watch uh, certain kinds of TV that I like that are slanted towards my point of view and I think that's what happens to a lot of people they you know um, we, I think we tend to watch what we agree with and we don't go down that rabbit hole into the things that we have to think about because it's not quite what we're familiar with but yes,
2: how much the more of enriching narrow casting going on all the time you know the people who just watch Fox News or just watch MSNBC
1: right
0: yeah there's no there's no uh there's no diversity in what your viewership, viewing, viewing habits are. That's for sure. It's uh, it's uh, one long, narrow lane. And
1: but Can I just say one thing about that? Okay. I have tried to watch Fox News. I really yeah. have. Okay. I've tried. I flip into it and I go, oh, my word. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then I'm back out. It's like, oh, I can't do it. And I can tell my friends that are Fox News enthusiasts, and they know that I'm not, and it's like, oh, God. But you know what's really funny? I don't even, even though I would probably enjoy it, I don't even uh, go to Facebook and like the talk show hosts that I watch because hmm. I don't want my friends to see anything like that. Isn't that funny? Is it just well, me? Well, we
2: protect ourselves, you know, about what we show others. There's a limit to what we're going to show and not show, and I think we're all looking for acceptance, too. And, um so, You know, not wanting to put ourselves in opposition to people that we we know and who are friends.
1: So the fact that I've just been talking about this on this show for the last hour, I think I'm going to have to just um, destroy this show, and I'm just kidding.
2: (laughs) I think the cat's out of the bag. (laughs) Uh, uh, one thing,
0: one thing for sure. One thing for sure, uh, Joan. I say this lightheartedly. Deborah doesn't have to worry about her friends knowing that she no. uh, enjoys whatever she enjoys uh, on the left-hand side of the spectrum because they're never there. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Oh, that's okay. That's all right. I'm happy with it. I really am. I'm very happy with it. Well, um, so, is there going to be another book? following this one, with the same people, I same Well, I wrote
2: the so, uh, that there could be a sequel uh, to the talk show. And uh, the way that it ends, there's the sense that there's always another gunman and that the characters uh, who survive will, will live to have other adventures. So, so yes, and uh, I'm already planning another human agenda. This one would be on the issues that divide us, and it wouldn't just be about sexual orientation, gender identity, though it would revisit that, but also uh, issues of race, uh... multiculturalism uh... issues of second amendment issues uh... economic polarization the idea would be to have conversations with five or six people on each of those topics and then the last uh... conversation in each section of the book will be a, a kind of panel discussion that will actually um originate in a live event somewhere around the country that i'll be moderating or taking part in so that's the idea for that
0: well that sounds like a great project there i i I'm be interested in knowing more about it as that comes to fruition. Uh, if if people want to get after to, listening to this and they want to get hold of uh, your materials and so on and so forth, Joe, what is the best way that they can they can find your work?
2: Okay, so I have a website, JoeWenke.org, J-O-E-W-E-N-K-E.org, and I'm on Amazon. I'm on Barnes and Noble. I'm on all of the electronic sites. Later this year, I think I'll be in bookstores all around the country. And um, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Joe Wanky.
0: Well, that's great. Plenty of access there. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us again uh, and be with Deborah for the first time. And uh, it's always an interesting conversation when we have you on, and I'm sure at some point in the future we'll have you back again
2: if you're willing. Well, I'd be delighted, and it's been a great pleasure. I had a lot of fun speaking with both of you today. Thanks for having me. Well, it was
1: very fun. Thank you for talking so openly about your process and I'm um, looking forward to finishing the talk show. As you can tell, I did start it, but I haven't finished it, but I will. I like it.
0: Well, I, recommend
1: it. All right. I recommend well, thanks it. I
0: recommend it. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Take care. Have a great okay. day.
1: Take you care You too. Now. Have Bye a great day. Day.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Bye now. Well, that was Mr. Joe Winkie and uh, certainly uh, an interesting gentleman and uh uh a lot of a lot of give, a lot of things to think about.
1: Well, I'm telling you the book is good and I am going to finish it. And um uh he's a very, very good writer and big thinker and I think we need more people writing that kind of stuff.
0: Absolutely. I, I really agree. do. Well until next time, which should be at Friday, uh at ten o'clock in the morning. This is Pete Peters, Deborah Brown, the Boomer the Babe signing off. And we'll talk to you then. Have a great day everybody. Take care. You've been listening to The Boomer and the Babe Show with hosts Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. The Boomer and the Babe Show is broadcast live on Tuesdays and Fridays. For a schedule of these shows and other shows produced by the Boomer and the Babe Radio Network, go to boomerandthebabe.com.